before we dig in today, we're going to be in Haggai 2. I have a quick question for you. Have you ever dealt with disappointment or discouragement? Ever? I know the answer is yes. Um, I'm going to tell you about one time I experienced disappointment and discouragement. It was May of 2021, so just over a year ago. I'm sitting at the Salt Company Leaders Celebration at the end of the year. You're like, wait a second. You got discouraged or disappointed at a celebration? You'll find out why. Okay. We have all of our leaders together in the room. We celebrate all that God did over the last year. And then we, we hand out awards to our student leaders called the Salties. Fun way for us to like honor and encourage leaders. I think of one gal who got the award, the light bulb award. Because there were so many times during the year that we would be teaching her something and she'd be like, I never knew that. And I was like, yes, you're the light bulb. You had so many light bulb moments this year that you win the light bulb award. Think of another guy who was driving his friends week after week, filling his car from Co College and then going back and getting more and driving them here to Veritas on Thursday nights. And so he got the Salt Uber Award, right? It's like, dude, you should start making money on this. No, I'm just kidding. He was just bringing his friends time after time. So we get to the end of the student awards and our staff decides, hey, it's going to be a great idea to like just take a step back and let them give us some awards because, you know, let's let them flatter us. And so they start working through the awards. We save the best for last. And I'm like, oh, you know, what great things did they have to say about me? Comes to this table of guys and it's like, hey, what award would you give to Jordan, the director of Salt Company? And they're like, we decided you would get the, the Hot Rod Dad Bot Award. <laughs> and I was like, wait a second. How was this honoring? Like, I had just bought a moped the month before. I understood the hot rod part, but they're like, the dad bod. I was like, that is discouraging. And so for those of you that don't know what a dad bod is, it kind of hit me this morning that, like, I don't just talk to college students. I have to define what a dad bod is. So I take it to a slang dictionary. Here we go. Dad bod is a male body type that is best described as softly round. <laughs> yeah. It's built upon the theory that once a man has found a mate and fathered a child, he doesn't need to worry about maintaining a sculpted physique. It gets better, okay? It gets better. Bear with me. If human bodies were cuts of meat, the dad bod would skew more marbled ribeye than filet mignon. Or, if human bodies were sea mammals, dad bod would be more like a grazing manatee than a speedy dolphin. The dad bod is more mudslide than mountain, more soft serve than sorbet, more sad trombone than clarinet, and more mashed potato than skinny fry. The dad bod is built for comfort. And I was just like, wow, like, this is what they think of me, huh? And uh, the sad reality is I kind of like felt around, looked down, it's like, they're kind of right, you know? I had become a dad at that point and didn't have all the time that I used to spend training. But I looked back, October of 2017, I had run an ultra marathon in Chicago. I was in the best shape of my life. You know, I pull up the Garmin app and look at my mile pace for 30 miles, and I was like, how did I get here? <laughs> like, how did I go from ultra marathoner to dad bod? And I became discouraged, honestly. It was like, okay, came home from work that day, was like, I need to go to the gym. I hop on a treadmill. I can't run one mile at the pace that I ran 30 at. And I started to just kind of ask the question, like, what's the point? 
Like, what is the point of hopping on the treadmill again? What's the point of getting in shape again? I know I'm not going to be ever in as good of shape as I was back then. And if we're honest, that's what discouragement is often about, isn't it? It's about either looking back or maybe even looking ahead, looking at your ideals and then comparing them to your current circumstances. And the reality is you're disappointed. You're frustrated. Your, your ideals are unmet. And with that, you might even ask yourself, what's the point? And it's funny when we, when we laugh at the guy with the dad bod and, you know, poke fun at our physical fitness. But it's a lot less funny when we start talking about deeper issues. Issues that we experience personally, maybe familial issues, certainly large-scale issues as a nation. I mean, when Ellie and I moved to Cedar Rapids in 2019, I think one of the greatest discouragements to me initially was friendships. Like Ellie and I had left great friends behind in Cedar Falls for the sake of coming to Cedar Rapids and belonging to this church. And though I had friends here and friendships were forming, I grieved the friendships that I lost in Cedar Falls. I was discouraged I didn't have the same people to like bear my soul with and confess sin to, and we just weren't that deep yet. And so the question is like, will I ever get those friendships again? Maybe for you, it was you look back on times or seasons of incredible spiritual growth, whether that be in high school or college or early adult years, you just look back on those times and you miss them. You look back on your last job And you loved that you were actually interacting with people and not working at your basement at home. Or maybe as a family, you think about your marriage and you look back and you're like, man, how much more connected was I with my spouse before kids came and before youth sports took over and before every night was run by activities and events? I miss what it was like to connect with my spouse. Or you think about before the kids left home. Or even just a previous relationship with one of your children. Or for kids, you think about a previous relationship with a parent that you just miss. Man, I miss when we used to be closer. Maybe you miss your old neighborhood. Maybe you have moved and you miss the neighborhood you used to live in. You miss your old church community. You miss your old connection group. And then we, we talk about America at large, and many of us miss the perceived prominence of Christianity. If nothing else, by a moral ethic, we miss it. We miss when God used to be welcome in the school system. We miss revivals in the church. We miss the Billy Graham moments, the tent revivals, and thousands of people coming to Christ, and we're left discouraged. Like, is this ever going to happen again? What's even the point, maybe, you might ask? So the question we're left asking is, how do we remain faithful in the midst of discouragement? Or maybe more pointed, how do you remain faithful in the midst of discouragement? That's the the question that Haggai 2 is going to help us answer today. So go ahead, grab your Bibles. That's where we're going to be. Haggai 2, don't be afraid. Use your table of contents. Otherwise, like Michael said, you're going to be flipping the whole service. And I can teach over flipping pages, but the person next to you is going to get really annoyed. So, Haggai 2, if you missed us last week, I encourage you, go back 
and listen to Michael's message on Haggai 1. It really laid the foundation for us as we dig into this new series. But I'll catch you up a little bit on context, okay? In the year 587 B.C., God had sent Babylon against his people of Israel. In many ways, it was an act of judgment against them. They had walked for years and years and years in idolatry and injustice. God had sent warnings time and time again, and they still weren't listening. So Babylon comes. They overtake the southern kingdom of Judah. They decimate the city. They destroy the temple, and they kick the Israelites out. They're sent into exile. But the good news is, God wasn't done with Israel. Though he had enacted judgment, he had also promised, one day down the road, I'm going to bring restoration. And so we jump into Haggai 1. It's the year 520 BC, 67 years later. And by this point, the Persians had overtaken the Babylonians. Okay, Babylon is no longer reigning, which means the Israelites get to come back. They get to come home. They're invited to rebuild this city of Jerusalem, rebuild this temple that lay in ruins. But the problem is, last week, as we jumped into Haggai 1, we saw that God's people did start rebuilding, right? What were they rebuilding now? Their own houses. They started rebuilding these luxurious homes while the temple laid in ruins, and God comes to them and offers them a sharp rebuke. He says, your priorities are off. What are you doing rebuilding your own houses, focusing on your own life, when my temple lies in ruins? You're missing the point. If all of life is meant to be all about God, and you're all about yourself, you're missing the point. And so he challenges them, but he also promises his presence. He says, I'm with you. And so Michael's big idea last week, restore your passion for God by remembering the presence of God. Trying to just like call us out of this selfish living, refix our priorities by remembering God is with us. He is with us. And at the end of Haggai 1, three weeks after preaching this message, Israel starts rebuilding the temple. Things seem to be going great. But as we dig into Haggai 2, we find out rebuilding the temple wasn't going as planned. So read with me. Haggai 1, Haggai 2, verse 1. It says, In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say... Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? And so here, the Spirit of God has been kind enough to preserve the date of this sermon, much like he did in Haggai 1. We come to find out that this sermon, God speaking through the prophet Haggai, was delivered on October 17th, 521. And you might say, so what? Well, in order to understand the significance of this message, you have to understand the significance of that date. Okay? It's the seventh day of the Feast of Sukkot, otherwise known in the Bible as the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. This was a Jewish festival, incredible celebration, lasted an entire week, and it was huge, massive. 
In fact, every native-born male Jew was commanded to participate in it. So all these people are in Jerusalem, and here's what they're doing. They're celebrating God's faithfulness. They're celebrating the harvest, right? It's the end of harvest season, and they're like, wow, God, look at how much you've provided us. And it's a festival that's meant to fix their eyes backwards on God's faithfulness to Egypt, to Israel, leading them out of Egypt. Okay, so looking at God's provision, looking at God's faithfulness. A time of celebration, much like the Salties, right? But it, it's not going as planned. I think Israel here feels like they got the Hot Rod Dad Bot Award. <laughs> they're, they're looking at their circumstances. We see in Haggai 1, they had experienced great drought in the land. So they're probably looking at their harvest and they're like, wow, this is it. And then there's people in their midst, as we find out in verse 3, who were old enough, or maybe wise enough, uh, to look back almost 70 years and remember Solomon's temple. Which, by the way, if you were to read in 1 Kings 8, Solomon's temple was dedicated during the Feast of Sukkot. So, as these people are rebuilding the temple, there's people in their midst that are looking back at Solomon's temple and then looking at what they're building, and they are so discouraged. For God to say, is it not as nothing in your eyes? Like, what they're building compared to Solomon's temple, complete garbage. And they have to be left asking the question, what's the point? Why are we still doing this? Why are we rebuilding This is never going to be like Solomon's temple. And as I've already alluded to, we're not a lot different than Israel in 520, are we? We know what it's like to be discouraged. We know what it's like to feel crippled by the weight of disappointment. We look back, and then we see where we're at today. And this is a lot bigger issue than what Cyclone football fans are about to experience this fall. All right? You're going to look back. You're going to miss your quarterback. No Brock Purdy on the scene, okay? It's bigger than that, though, right? We're talking about deep spiritual issues. You look back on your spiritual disciplines when you were thriving and you were loving Scripture and you were praying all the time, and now you look at life that's just crowded and overwhelmed. Maybe it's because you're homeschooling your kids. You're working overtime. You think, man... I used to be a lot closer to God back then. You look at your social life and you think about how great of relationships you used to have. And then a pandemic hits and politics rage. And you think about all the broken friendships you now have. How close you used to be with people, but now something has gotten in the way. And you're discouraged. You you think about the missional opportunities in front of you. Maybe you used to go into the office and you used to interact with people socially and now you're isolated, you're alone. Or you think back on your college campus when you used to have all this freedom to just go and talk to people about Jesus and now you're working in a public school. And you think, man, I really miss what it used to be like when I just talked to everybody about Jesus. But now I'm not there. And though we might come in on a Sunday morning, we might save face, we might pretend like we're thriving. If you're anything like me, I know that's not true. 
at least not in every area of your life. There are things when you get alone with God and you think about the question, how am I doing, like Michael asked last week, there's areas of your life you're disappointed. You're discouraged. Your ideals are not being met. And so then the question is, what do we do? Like, what do we actually do to remain faithful in the midst of discouragement? Well, God actually has a plan for us, as we're about to see in Haggai 2. You have to read verses 4 and 5. He says, Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. God is telling them, and he is telling us, you're discouraged. Here's what you need to do. You need to be strong. You need to go to work. You need to not be afraid. In other words, you need to remain faithful. But he doesn't just say, go to work, go be faithful. You know what the fuel is there for your faithfulness? His presence. Look at how faithful God is that he looks upon his people, discouraged, looking at their temple that appears as though nothing, and he says to them, I am with you. Look at my faithfulness. Verse 4, I am with you. And then in verse 5, in my study, I found out this is one of the strongest statements in the entire Old Testament of God's ongoing presence among his, among his people. Verse 5, it says, My spirit remains in your midst. My spirit remains in your midst. And the root word for remains actually connotates a level of permanence that Israel was not used to seeing. They were understanding of God's presence in this sort of momentary, temporary event, but he says, no, my spirit in permanence remains in your midst. And God is pleading with his people to stop looking backwards. Stop looking at what used to be. Stop looking at Solomon's temple. And start looking at what you have right now. Namely, the spirit of God. His presence in your midst. And the good news is, this isn't the first time Israel has heard words like this. Again, put yourself back in the context of the Feast of Sukkot, right? They can't help but think of God's faithfulness to Israel in the exodus of Egypt. Well, God told Moses, before they're about to head into the Promised Land, to tell Israel this in Deuteronomy 31.6. It says, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. And they're looking back at the temple of Solomon, how great it used to be. And they've heard these words from David to Solomon before he made the temple in 1 Chronicles 28. David said to Solomon, his son, be strong and courageous and do it. Go to work, right? Don't be afraid. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord God, even my God, is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. It's amazing. And in Matthew 28, Jesus gives his disciples the Great Commission. 
He tells them to go and make disciples of all nations. And what does he say at the end? He says, I'm with you. And how long is he with you? Until the end of the age. And I don't know if you knew this or not. It's not the end of the age yet, Veritas. That means Jesus is with you. If you have said, man, Jesus, I trust in you alone. He says, yes, I am with you. And yeah, you might be discouraged. And yes, your circumstances have changed. But my spirit has not changed. The same God of Israel is the same God dwelling in us today. We can take great heart in knowing that God is present with his people. In fact, I even felt challenged during the first service to say, man, maybe we need to go back and listen to Michael's message on Haggai 1 all over again. Because we can't belabor this point of God's presence with us being a very big deal. God is with us, but in Haggai 2, God doesn't just show his faithfulness to his people by promising his presence. As if that wasn't enough, he says, yes, I am currently with you, but what he's about to do is show his faithfulness in the future too. Look at this, verses 6 through 9. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. God doesn't just show his faithfulness in his presence. He shows his faithfulness in his promises. God is putting his power on display five times in three verses If you're astute, if you are observant, you understand that the words Lord of hosts is used five times in three verses. Anytime you see repetition in your Bible reading, God is trying to get a point across to you. (laughs) And what he's trying to get across to you here is that he is sovereign. He is in control. He is powerful. And if you just look at the simple reading of this text, what he's saying is, I'm going to cause cosmic upheaval. I'm going to shake the world. I'm going to do whatever I need to do to make sure that all the resources necessary to finish this temple get here. I'm going to use the wealth. I'm going to use the silver and the gold, the materials of nations other than Israel to make sure that this temple is finished. In other words, I'm going to get what is mine, God says. I'm going to finish what I started, God says. And God, through the prophet Haggai, calls Israel to faithfulness by letting them know that this future temple is going to be way better than anything they've ever seen before. But the problem is, it's not just gold and silver, okay? We get over shiny things really quick. He says, no, the motivating factor is the promise of glory and peace like you've never seen it before. He's trying to fix their eyes forward on a, on a better temple. Have any of you guys ever heard the quote, Teddy Roosevelt coined it, comparison is the thief of joy. Have any of you heard that? See, for the longest time, I thought that was true. And if you only read like the first three verses, you'd be like, yeah, comparison 
steals our joy. But then why is God actually asking them to compare what's happening now to the future? (laughs) He's comparing to what God is going to do. And it's actually a motivating factor. So maybe our problem is not that we're comparing. Maybe the problem is that we're comparing backwards instead of comparing forwards. We're actually called to look ahead to God's faithfulness and his promises and say, oh yeah, I can keep going because he's going to do what he said he's going to do. And in Haggai 2, God is pointing his people to a future temple, not only a physical one, but he's pointing to a Messiah. He's pointing to the presence of God coming and dwelling amongst his people. And centuries later, during the same feast of Sukkot, a man would stand outside this temple and say these words, John 7, 37 through 38, says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And this man was not just a man. His name was Jesus Christ, the Messiah Fully God, fully man. He stands outside this temple and he's like, hey, I know you're, you're thinking about the temple behind me, but he's like, here I am. Fullness of the glory of God right in front of you. As we saw in Hebrews, he is the radiance of the glory of God. You want to know the glory of God? Look at Jesus. You want to know the peace of God? Look at the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. He's standing amongst his people as the true and better temple. And he is telling them these words. He says, if you believe in me, I'm going to offer you rivers of living water. He's referring to his Holy Spirit. So he's telling us in this room today, he says, hey, if you believe in me, and he's not talking intellectually, he's talking about your heart. He says, if you understand that one day when you stand before the throne room of God, you are not putting your own confidence in how good you are, how many good works you accomplished, how tightly you obeyed the law of the land and the law of the Lord. But you said, no, I put my trust in the finished work of Christ. Not my half-hearted attempts at the perfect life, but Jesus' perfect life. His substitutionary death in your place and his resurrection from the dead. If you look at the real life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and say, that is my only hope in life and death is Jesus Christ. He says, I promise you rivers of living water. My spirit dwells in you. That's amazing. And that's the first advent of Jesus. Haggai 2 looks forward to that. We look back at that and we still say, amen and praise God that Jesus came. And he has made a way for me to experience eternal life, not just in a quantity standpoint, but in a quality standpoint. Right now that I get to experience the glory and peace of God. But the good news is, he's not finished, Veritas. There's going to be the second advent of Jesus. And he's going to come back. And he's going to rule. And he's going to reign. And he's going to make all things new. All sickness and death is done away with. The sin left in your wicked heart destroyed. And just like God used the wealth of the nations to come finish the temple, he will bring people from every tribe, tongue, and nation before the throne of God to praise him. 
because he is worthy to be worshipped. God is going to finish what he started. And so maybe, just maybe, if we're discouraged and the presence of God was not enough for us for whatever reason, you need to look at God's faithfulness to you and looking at his future promises and living with a sense of anticipation. And so beginning of the, the sermon, we asked this question, how do we remain faithful? Really simply, here's how it is. We remain faithful to God by remembering his faithfulness to us. Or more pointed for you, remain faithful to God by remembering his faithfulness to you. You look at his faithfulness to you and his presence offered to you freely in the person and work of Jesus Christ, made evident by the filling of his spirit that is offered to those who believe. And you look at his faithfulness in reading his promises that he's going to finish what he started in you and in this world. So how do we start applying this? Right? That's, that's the question we should be asking anytime we, we come to the scriptures. Okay, if this is true, how does it change the way I live my life? So I just want to offer you a few simple steps to say this is what it looks like to apply the faithfulness of God to you. Number one, you need to bring your discouragement to God. He already knows you feel it. He already knows what you're thinking. And he wants you to tell him. God, I'm discouraged that my spiritual disciplines aren't what they used to be. God, I'm discouraged that I don't have the community I once had. God, I'm discouraged that I don't share the gospel like I used to. You know I'm frustrated. God, would you please help? Number two, be aware of his presence. Be refreshed by what we talked about last week in Haggai 1. God is with you. He looks at you and he says, hey, I know you're discouraged. I know that what you're going through right now feels really mundane and ordinary. But I am with you. My spirit remains in you. And with that, we can say, There is no such thing as an ordinary day or an ordinary task. If you are filled with the extraordinary presence of God, everything becomes extraordinary. You have God inside of you. Number three, remember his promises. Like, if it helps you, jump to the end of Revelation and read about the new heavens and the the new earth. Read about what Jesus is going to finish. Cling to and meditate a promise such as he that started a good work in you will bring it unto completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Remember the promises of God. And then really simply, okay, be faithful in work. (laughs) Be faithful in work. I think we miss this sometimes. We sit back and we wait for some like, you know, writing in the sky telling us our next step. When God is putting something in front of us right now that he's like, hey, just be faithful with this. Be faithful with what you have, what's right in front of you. And I used to, you know, be paralyzed by this idea of, oh, man, I have a dad bod. I'm never going to run 30 miles again. What's the point of hopping on the treadmill? He's like, hey, you still have a body, right? You still have two feet that work, right? You can still run a mile, right? I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) We'll find out. (laughs) But... God was telling me, hey, maybe you need to run a mile before you can run 30. Be faithful. What can you do today? And you're maybe looking at your social life and you're like, man, I wish I had all the friends I used to have. 
and I want to have a, a group of friends, but you're not going to find that tomorrow. Here's what you can do this week, though. You can invite one person over to your dinner table. <laughs> you can be faithful with that. You might look back and say, man, I, I miss when I used to share the gospel all the time. Everybody that I came in contact with, I was unashamed. I couldn't help but speak of what Jesus had done in my life. And though this week you might not have the courage to do that with everybody. But what if you share the gospel with one person? In fact, you probably already know their name. You're already thinking about them right now. What if you share the gospel with one person and you were faithful there? You look at your spiritual disciplines and you're like, man, I used to be able to read and study the Bible all the time. You know, I'd wake up an hour early or, you know, I prayed three times a day. And now with your schedule, you're like, man, I'm never going to be able to read my Bible in six months again like I did when I was 22. But what if you woke up five minutes early and read one chapter? What if you were faithful there? What might God do? And as I think about what it looks like to be faithful in work, I think of a friend of mine. His name is Lance. Okay, Lance is a very ordinary guy. Lives in small town Iowa has a very ordinary family, wife and two kids. He works a very ordinary job. He's a supervisor at a manufacturing company. And in many ways, I think Lance could look at his life and say, what's the point? It's just ordinary. You know, I don't live in a city full of thousands of people to share the gospel with. I don't have, you know, a lot going on with my family. We're not the wealthiest. We're not the smartest. He doesn't have a ministry job where he can just spend 40 hours a week going out into the streets or on the campuses sharing the gospel. He could hang his head and be discouraged. It's not what Lance does. Because he understands the presence of God. <laughs> because several years ago, he's set free from the chains of addiction. God radically changes his life. And now he says... God's presence is real and eternity is real. That means heaven is real and hell is real. And I'm coming into contact with people every day that don't know about this. That don't know about the glory and peace of God that I have and that don't understand the future of eternity. And so Lance's life is ruled by this crazy commitment to faithfulness. He shares the gospel in the workplace. He's sharing the gospel on the baseball field. He's raising his kids up in the way of the Lord through very ordinary means of Bible reading and prayer. And let me just tell you, okay, how many, how many fingers and toes you got? Not enough to count how many people Lance has baptized. And it's not because he's this extra theological guy. It's not because he has the most going for him in life. It's because he knows the presence of God and he knows the promises of God. And so that's the vision, honestly. That's my prayer as I look at Haggai 2 and this command, like, be faithful and work. I mean, when Ellie and I moved to Cedar Rapids, I'm like, what is special about Cedar Rapids, right? Like, kind of felt like, what good can come from Cedar Rapids, right? But... This is exactly where God wants to work, you guys. Ordinary people in an ordinary place 
just committed to faithfulness and sitting back with anticipation saying, God, we know you are with us. We know you are good on your promises, and we are just going to be faithful and work, and we're going to sit back and watch you do extraordinary things. Think about that. Not just one person named Lance in our church, but a church full of people like Lance saying, I'm going to be faithful with the task in front of me, remembering God is with me, remembering God is true to his word, and I'm just going to be faithful. What might God do? A piece of me thinks, we're going to catch a sliver of heaven here in Cedar Rapids. We're going to see lives transformed. We're going to see sin defeated in people's life that they have never found victory over. We're going to see anxieties put at ease by the peace of the gospel. We get to see that happen in our city. And I believe that is not meant to stay here. Okay? The reference to the nations in Haggai 2 is important. That we here at Veritas Church would say, yes, God, you are turning everything upside down in Cedar Rapids, and we cannot help but take this to the ends of the earth. And not only will Cedar Rapids look a little bit more like heaven, but one day, Lord willing, we will end up worshiping before the throne of God, people amongst every tribe, tongue, and nation, and we won't say, wow, look how great Veritas is. No, we won't say that. We're not going to be inward facing, but we are going to look out and we're going to say, God, how gracious were you to use ordinary people to help contribute to this? Wow, you are faithful. I hope that picture just burns in your head today and this week as you just prayerfully consider, God, what does it mean to be faithful today that we might get to contribute to the kingdom of God? Amen.